Well, it is a thrill to know the Lord. I may not look look like it, but I did used to enjoy doing thrill-seeking things. I went whitewater rafting down the Shotover River and there were five inches of snow on the ground. We had to helicopter in to get up the river. And as we came down the river, we hit a rock and I became a human cannonball and I knocked three of the other members out of the raft and left the rafteer and I grabbed a rope as we went over so that we were the only two left and we had to try and fish the other three out of the rapids uh, before we got down to some dangerous areas. Uh, I had frostbite in the tips of my finger for about two months afterwards. But then we're in South Africa in the Kalahari Desert and we're on this wonderful dry salt pan. And uh, a truck turned up with a parasail on it. And the idea was you go parasailing, the truck takes off, and you go in the air and you have a lovely sail through the Kalahari. And I thought, oh, this would be nice to try. <laughs> Problem was, as I went up, the wind shifted, the truck went that way, and the parachute went that way. And I finished face down in the Kalahari dry salt pan dragged for about 20 metres through that salt pan. Well, they flew a plane in and I finished up in Johannesburg Hospital uh, to see whether they had to repair much. I lost a lot of skin. In fact, they took photos and said that uh, I'd been mauled by a lion. It looked that good. Um, I still have the scars to prove I was in that salt pan. It was a painful experience. Then a few years ago, we were in New Zealand. We often minister in the um, uh, Queenstown Brethren Assembly. We spent up to six weeks there with them. And there's a fellow in there who has a business which is bungee jumping. (laughs) I was willing, but my wife wasn't. (laughs) She thought that I'd really had enough of these thrill-seeking things to do. But brother, you're right, the greatest thrill is to know the Lord. And that lasts more than just the experience. It lasts for all those years. It's a continual thrill. Every morning before we start the day, we praise the Lord and I sit down and we have a Bible reading. We thank the Lord for the day past and pray for the day ahead because we don't know what lies ahead of us five minutes from here. All we can do is commit it to the Lord. Well, that's just a little testimony. Let's get down to the message. One of the questions that the disciples asked the Lord Jesus Christ were, what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the world. And for years, the church has been asking that same question. Are there signs in the world that this age in which we live is drawing to a close? Well, I'd like to take a couple of those 
uh, questions and deal with two uh, subjects today. And one of them to this morning I want to deal with is, uh, is the world moving towards the acceptance of a one-world government? The world is certainly becoming closer, a closer society than was ever possible in years past. Technology helps us to see what is happening in the world within minutes of its occurrence. In fact, if you go back to the invasion of um, uh, Iraq, uh, there were cameras on the spot where you could actually see the live battles being performed. Country treaties are being brokered between nations. Trade agreements are being agreed to on a regular basis. Never before in the history has the world been closer than it is today. And so the world thinks and speaks today globally rather than locally. But is a global world the ideal or will it lead to the demise of our country's ideals and our way of life? And that's a very important question. I wonder any, uh, whether any of you have heard of Agenda 21 stroke 230. It was a United Nations, or claimed to be a United Nations agenda, and uh, it was put up on the internet, and it was said that the UN was working on plans to achieve the following. <coughs> the plans were to create a new world order, and a one-world government. Among the items under discussion were a global currency, a central world bank, disbanding national sovereignty, universal basic income, microchipping of citizens, mandatory vaccinations, and end the use of fossil fuels. The problem is that it was a false report but the world embraced it. It went all over the internet and people thought that what they were reading was true. Uh, there was an Agenda 21-230 uh, discussed by a UN conference in 1991, but none of the items uh, that were proposed in this agenda on the website were in that agenda. But many believed it to be true. Why? Because that's the way our world is moving. Many, uh, too, are working behind the scenes. Uh, sorry, for many years now, there have been stories circulating that influential people are working behind the scenes with various governments to create such a world order. The terms many people use today are globalisation, it's a key word you will see bandied around by many. Uh, this is one definition of globalisation. It's not the only one. But it says this, globalisation, the spread of the flow of financial products, goods, technology, information and jobs across natural borders and culture. 
that's uh, a rough definition of it. But is globalisation new? You know, it's been proposed before. Well, let me take you back in the scriptures to the first attempt at globalisation. We read in the book of Genesis that the whole earth was of one language and one speech. When Noah and his family left the ark, they entered a different world to that which had been previous. Genesis tells us there were only about eight people who entered the ark and they were on the ark around 370 days. And when they came off the ark, it was a totally different world. And we read this in the scriptures, that it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Following their departure from Ararat, the people migrated southeast, settled in the plain of Shinar, which today is where modern-day Babylon is, in the lower Euphrates Valley. But then we read, read this. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The motivation in building that tower was to make a, make a name for those who built it. The whole idea was to establish a centre so that they could maintain unity in a common society. But was that God's plan for creation? Absolutely not, because we know when Adam and Eve were created, they were given these instructions, and the Lord blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Uh, God told Adam and Eve they were to replenish the earth. Uh, some take it to mean refill the earth to show that there was a previous occupation of the earth. Uh, but the word in Hebrew means to fill up, as, an old, as the old English, English word means. It means literally just to fill the earth uh, with your... Uh, whole uh, with your families. God's plan was to fill the whole earth, but after the flood, the plans of the people was to unite. Their plans to unite, of course, were led by a man called Nimrod. Well, we learn in the scriptures that Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty man in the earth. Nimrod was the great-grandson of Noah, and Genesis 10 describes him as a mighty one in the earth. The Hebrew word Nimrod literally means we shall rise up or we will rebel. It gives you a picture of the type of man he was. Genesis describes him as a mighty hunter before the Lord. We are not told what he hunted. People, power, glory, wealth or world domination because he is the one who is leading this cause. Genesis describes him as the first on earth to be a mighty man. But Josephus, the historical Jewish writer, wrote this concerning Nimrod. 
He said he was a bold man and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as it were through his means they were happy, but to believe that it was his own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God but to bring them unto a constant dependence on his power. And that appears to be the aim of Nimrod. Well, Nimrod, we know, founded the civilizations of Assyria and Babylon, and uh, both these nations, of course, in a future day, tried to destroy the earthly kingdoms of God, namely God's people, Israel. But Nimrod wanted to form a global society. Well, he tells us that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Achan, and Canaan, Cana, in the land of Shinar. These cities all lay in what's called in ancient days the Fertile Crescent and was the settlement of civilization after the flood. Remember, all this happened before the dispersion of the sons of Noah, but it was never God's plan, so God acted. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men built. Why did God allow that tower to continue and from the narrative it appears as though it was completed? Perhaps the reason was to see what was completed but never see it fulfill the purpose for which it was built. It was built to unify the people. It wasn't to get up into heaven to worship God. They worshipped the sun God on the top of it, uh, but it was never designed to reach right up into heaven where God was. Uh, But it was a place of worship and the tower was a place of unifying the people. But God stepped in and frustrated their purposes. And God said this, let us go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. First, God confounded the language. Babel is literally a, a word that comes very closely from the word balal, which means to mix or mingle. So God's answer to globalization was to separate the people by mixing the language so that communication became impossible. And as a result of that, the Lord scattered them abroad, thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. The sons and their daughters, families began to separate, and their global ideals were brought to nothing. But the ideal of globalization was reconceived when in 1958 a treaty was signed in Rome. This was what that treaty said. It said it has reconceptualized and brought to date the historic ideals of European unity dating back to Roman times. In 1957, a treaty was signed in Rome by, uh, that united six countries 
which were called the Economic European Community. The thought was that Europe was at its strongest when Rome ruled the world for over a thousand years. So their first ideal was to reunite the Western Roman Union in order to become a global group again. Well, the Roman Empire, of course, had divided back in 328 AD or 386. It started to fall apart and in th by 395 AD uh, they were all divided back into their normal countries, uh, the 52 colonies, literally, that made up the European uh, or the Roman Empire because that was aided by the moral decline of the nation and there were invasions from the north that uh, the barbarian tribes and it just broke the union up. But you know, in the 1900s or 1800s it started, men tried to bring Europe back together again. The first of those men was Napoleon. Remember, he uh, took over the title of king of France and he went down to Rome and he announced that he was now king of the Romans and uh, he tried to bring uh, the whole of the old Roman Empire back together again. Well, that failed. Kaiser Wilhelm in the First World War tried the same thing. And remember that the term he took of Kaiser is the German word for Caesar. He saw himself as a uniter and uh, an organiser to bring Europe together again. We know that Hitler tried that same ideal. But you know, it was never God's plan to allow that work to continue. It was not until 1957 that indeed that work was commenced. But then as things progressed in Europe, in 2009 the first president of the European Union was appointed and he made this statement at his inauguration speech. His name was Herman von Rompuy and he was uh, pres made president of that uh, union. And he made this statement amongst his speech, it is also the first year of global governance. Very interesting. He saw that the coming together of the European Union was a move towards a global control or global society. Um, so since that time, uh, the European Union has slowly begun to absorb the sovereignty of their member countries to form a system governing the countries that made up the old Roman Empire. These are the stated views of the EU. And the EU says the aims uh, of the EU within the wider world are to 
uphold and promote its values and interests, contribute to peace and security, contribute to sustainable development of the earth, contribute to solidarity and mutual respect among people, promote free and open trade between countries and eradicate poverty and protect human rights. But notice their aim is within the EU and the wider world. They have aims well beyond Europe in what they believe they should control. And uh, while some of these aims have been uh, achieved, uh, there is still a way to go on the world scene. But unity and central control is the aim of a reviving Roman Empire. These are some of their literatures that they produce. If you look at the one on the note, uh, left, uh, that picture, and we'll explain what the picture's about, note it has the statement, one voice but many tongues. Uh, the Strasbourg Parliament building was designed to be a symbol of an unfinished Tower of Babel that will be fulfilled by the EU, and that's what the architects uh, said. Well, from my understanding of Scripture, the Tower was actually finished and not totally unfinished, but its aims were unfinished. It never brought unity. But, of course, they believe that they are making a global government in the making. Well, when will globalisation become a reality? We read this from Revelation that power was given unto him, and the him, of course, is the Antichrist, and it was given him over all kindreds, languages, tongues rather, and nations, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. The reality of global control will be realised at the midpoint of the tribulation when the Antichrist is empowered by Satan to take control of the world. But it all happens under the direction of God. Not only are we talking about a global uh, government, uh, but there is much moves towards a global religion. That uh, global government that will ultimately come to power will be aided by a global religion. And there are moves today to bring the world under the umbrella of a global religion. For many years now, the religious world has been seeking unity amongst the many religious bodies around the world. One such group is this, and this is called the Council for a Parliament of the World's Religions. It was established as far back as 1893 and to cultivate harmony amongst the world's religions and spiritual communities and foster their engagement with the world and its guiding institutions in order to achieve a just, peaceful and sustainable world. Council meets every five years and uh, they've just had a meeting in Chicago uh, and that body 
uh, have indeed been meeting for all of those years. But since then, there have been other attempts to bring together a global religious body. This is established in 1948, and it was called the World Council of Churches. It was formed with 351 delegates who came from 147 churches. In September 2022, last year, they met and they had 574 delegates, and those totally represent 500 million Christians around the world. Their theme, Christ's love moves the world to reconciliation and unity, and their aim was stated as this at that conference. The globalised world in which we live demands of us a common witness to the gospel in response to the pressing needs of our time. They are promoting unity and globalisation. Interfaith meetings with the Vatican. Uh, This is Pope John the 23rd. He started the dialogue of unity with other religions. But it's very interesting, you know, because in 1986, Cardinal Ratzinger, who is pictured, said Catholics cannot pray together with other religions because only Catholicism was the true faith and all others were flawed to a greater or lesser extent. So be careful what you hear about the... um, Roman Catholics move towards unifying churches because they only have one move and that's to make them all Catholic. He said, they said this, praying together causes, carries the risk of syncretism, that is, or mixing religions. Yet as faith, he still held interfaith meetings all over the world and those meetings continue regularly with Pope Francis today. The ideal of the Church of Rome is unity, but on their terms. Tom Forrest, in the year 2000, uh, there was a move amongst the Catholic Church to unify everybody to work towards evangelisation of the world. And his statement was, our job is to make people as richly and as fully Christian as we can by bringing them into the Catholic Church. So their true faith, the two reasons for unity, is unity under their banner. And unfortunately the world is in that position of accepting it today. September, 108 religious world leaders met in their 7th Congress to promote peace, dialogue, mutual respect among people. It's called the Congress of the Leaders of World and Traditional Religions. So, uh, again, there's talk not only amongst governments and people about the need for a world government, but there's also talk amongst the need for a world a religious body. You know, we have to remember a little bit about how Europe was formed and why it was named. Um, Europa was the only daughter of the king of Phoenicia. 
And Zeus, a Greek god, was so smitten by this beautiful princess that he transfigured himself into a marvellous white bull to seduce her. The princess was astonished by the beauty of the animal and as they neared each other, he quickly leaned down and uh, at Eurypus' feet in an act of utter submission to her. Encouraged by her helpers, she climbed on the animal's back. Zeus got up, slowly started walking around and eventually broke into a gallop with Europa clinging on for her life. And upon reaching uh, the seashore, he dived into the sea. Zeus then carried Europa to Crete and upon reaching the island, Zeus reclaimed his human form. We have no picture of what uh, happened uh, to Europa after that, uh, but her influence on the ancient Greeks was so significant that they named the continent after her, Europe. Uh, but is that the end of the story? Because in Time magazine in 1991, the cover of the magazine gave you this picture of a bull with Europe riding on top of it and all the nation's flags of the European Union sitting on it. Revelation says this, that I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-covered beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. It took, of course, many people to the book of Revelation. We've seen for a number of years now the religious world has been uh, promoting, advocating unity amongst uh, the many religious bodies in the world. And the system that has been promoting it the hardest is the Catholic faith. With the true church raptured, the false a false church will be established in the first half of the tribulation that will dominate the ten kings of the revived Roman Empire. Revelation tells us that at the midpoint of the tribulation that those kings will turn against that religious system that has controlled them for the past three and a half years and destroy it. But note that this is all again under the control of God and moving according to his plans. The religious body will seduce the kings of the revived Roman Empire but eventually her power will be taken and the Antichrist will rule. This is what it tells us that at the midpoint God hath put in their hearts to fulfil his will and to agree and give their kingdoms under kingdom under the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. What makes me think it may be a form of the Catholic Church, it may not be exactly that, but we know where it will be centred. Twice in Revelation 17, there are references as to where the woman is situated. In verse 9 of that chapter, she sits on seven mountains. And when John wrote the book of the Revelation, everybody knew that the city that sat on seven mountains was Rome. 
There was no mistake about them understanding that. It also says in verse 18, it is the city that in John's day ruled over the world, which of course again was Rome. There will be a global church that will step into the gap left when the true church is raptured, but note it will be a politically motivated church just as the Church of Rome dominated the politics of Europe for over 1,000 years. They call it the Dark Ages, when Rome really controlled all the kings of, the Europe, of Europe in those days. There are many people today, though, who are voicing their views on globalisation. I want to quote a couple of them here for you this morning. Amy Webb, she is a spokesman for a group called the Future Today Institute. And in an article wrote, the world 50 years from now could look vastly different from the world of today. Adding this, I don't think globalisation will take that much time. One single catastrophic event could trigger the dominoes leading to a globalised government quicker than we think. Scholars are constantly thinking about this. Even the world recognises that it could be one event that would bring the world together to form a world government. Well, I, as a Christian, could tell her exactly what will trigger that. The rapture of the church. Because it's after that that a global world ruler will be revealed in the Antichrist. It will allow him to be uh, revealed and of course his promise to bring stability to a confused world. Lee Phillips is a science writer and EU political journalist and he wrote uh, this article in the Jacobin magazine we need a world government, but it has to be democratic. And then he added this. Globalisation of our political system has been taking shape amongst figures of the technocratic centre for some time now. Identifying a need for some form of global governance in the face of worldwide threats. The world is already governed by some 1,000 treaties and agencies that involve varying levels of fi finance and enforcement. For these, con uh, sorry, for these contras, centralists, sorry, moving towards a world government would not be a revolution as much as the next logical step. The voicing and thinking of these developments shows us how easy it will be for the Antichrist to become the one who will rise to be a rule leader. Why? Because today the world is being conditioned to accept such a person and government. Since the 1800s, all of these men have advocated or believed the answer to the world's problems could be solved by the establishment of a world government. The first of these, if you recognise him, was Ulysses Grant, who became president of the US, Albert Einstein, 
Churchill, even our own Bob Brown, surprisingly. Uh, he was got to be one of the worst leaders that this country's ever known. Uh, rank greeny and, uh, and everything else, but he was a, a world government. And of course, uh, the Pope. Throughout history, they've all believed that a world government is the answer to the world's needs. The year is 1918. World War I has just ended in Europe and Lady Edith Wilson entered a room in a Paris mansion to find President Woodrow Wilson and other world leaders on their knees studying a map of the world. Germany has just collapsed, which meant that Europe had to be reorganised. The Ottoman Empire had fallen, which meant the borders of the Middle East needed redrawing. The Russian royal house had been deposed. The world was in a mess. And uh, Wilson and the other world leaders were determined to reconstruct the entire globe. And seeing these men on their knees, Lady Edith remarked, you look like a lot of boys playing a game. Well, Wilson's reply was this. Alas, it is the most serious game ever undertaken for on the results of it hangs, in my estimation, the future peace of the world. I guess the key part of that statement was the word alas, because remember, it was the only word to come true in that statement that he made. The League of Nations formed after the First World War failed, and World War II resulted, and since then, the world has seen conflict on an ever-increasing scale and all over Europe and the Middle East conflict has been raging because of those decisions made while on their knees carving up the world. Human-based globalism is not the answer to our world. As we've seen, a false global world religion will be destroyed eventually and will lead to the final one world government of the Antichrist who will also be destroyed. When we read the scriptures it becomes apparent they are living today in the final church age and the Lord could call his people home at any time or any day. That will trigger the ultimate fall of all world empires and will herald in the beginning uh, of a righteous uh, world ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ. For seven years, the world will follow a world ruler that we saw last night will ultimately lead to his demise at the great battle of Armageddon. Uh, he will not have the answers to the world's problems. He will be someone who just desires worship of himself, just as Nimrod did back in those early days. But God broke up that unity and destroyed Babylon's unity just as he will destroy the Antichrist kingdom as well. Then, and only then, when the uh, millennial kingdom is established will true globalism become a reality. And we're moving 
slowly towards it. In a sense, the world's being prepared to accept the Antichrist because the whole world is talking about one world ruler who will bring peace to a troubled world. If you look around the world today at the governments that are in power, most of them are in trouble. Many of them are immoral people. Many of them are absolutely disastrous in their running of the countries. Um, I'm not sure ours is much better at this stage, but um, so I include ours in that in some way. And I don't care which party you follow, neither of the people leading our country have been men that you could admire. Our, our country is in a lot of trouble, as most countries in the world. You see, the world is looking for somebody who can bring stability. The Antichrist will promise it, but never deliver it. But it's all in God's plan. That there will be a day, but we are moving towards a global society. And the world is becoming a closer society than it ever was in years past. We need to just see the headlines, follow the news. If you want to see one sign that our days are drawing to an end, it's the fact that we're talking about these things from many sources around the world. And one day they will become a reality, but praise God, I won't be here. And if you've trusted the Saviour, you won't be here either. What a blessing that will be. No more politics. No more having to vote at programs. No more referendums to have to deal with. But that's another story that we're all struggling with today. We are moving towards it. The world is talking about it. And the world is being conditioned to accept it. Keep your eye on world affairs because they're a sign that the Lord's coming must be drawing ever closer. Just close with a little word of prayer and I'll hand back to you, brother. Gracious Father, these are all things that we can see as signs of how the age is moving. But our Father, we thank you that we have no concern about any of these things because our faith is in the faith of the living God who knows all that's happening in the world. And dear Lord, nothing happens, even in politics, without your hand being upon it. You, dear Lord, are preparing the world to accept the Antichrist. But our Father, he will not have the answers that the world wants. But our Father, we pray that in the meantime we will warn others of that coming judgment that will be upon his kingdom. And our Father, keep us faithful to thee in Jesus' precious name. Amen.